I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Cybersecurity has been around for several decades. With technological advances also come more advanced attacks. Michelle Gell, distinguished engineer and IoT security strategist at Cisco, has been in cybersecurity for 20 years. She explained how the panorama has changed, the different types of attacks, and also what the security threats in the Internet of Things are. In this episode, we were also joined by Mandy Galante, cybersecurity educator at Red Bank Regional High School. Mandy has been teaching cybersecurity since 2002. She explained how teaching cybersecurity has changed, the tools that they use, and training competitions that the kids can participate in. At the end, we talked about CyberStart, a program to educate young people about security through games and challenges. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to thank Blind for being a sponsor of the show. Blind is an anonymous app for tech workers to discuss, debate, and talk about compensation, corporate policies, workplace harassment, and more. I've used it for over a year and find it really helpful. There are 50,000 companies active on Blind, check if yours is there, and connect with other employees. Blind is available for iOS, Android, and online at teamblind.com. Go to teamblind.com to download the app. Thank you. Michelle, Distinguished Engineer and IoT Security Strategist at Cisco, and Mandy, Cybersecurity Educator at Red Bank Regional High School, are joining us today. Michelle and Mandy, welcome to the show. Thank you, and welcome yourself. Thank you. Thank you. Both of you have been working on cybersecurity for about 20 years, which I find really fascinating because a lot has changed in technology since then. I want to begin by talking about how the panorama has changed. But first, I want to ask both of you, what does cybersecurity mean? What does it encompass? I guess I can start. I mean, for me, it's a large encompassing term. To me, it encompasses anything about protecting within an organization, the infrastructure, the data, the physical facilities, and um, the endpoints, anything encompassed within the, the enterprise that might be of value that threat actors may want to attack in some manner. I'll piggyback on that. I've been trying to explain to other teachers why they should teach cybersecurity. And I'm, I put it in the scope of saving the world. So teachers are always saving the world. And if we teach kids how to be safe online, that's one part. And then we have secure users who understand how not to put data or themselves at risk. And that, that puts the network into a more secure position. And then if we take both of those things and we put cybersecurity professionals into place, we're saving the world. So for me right now as an educator, that's what cybersecurity is about. It's Yes, I am teaching them the exactly what Michelle just talked about so that they can help all of us. I like saving the world aspect. That's very true. Yeah, I like that too. And Michelle, you joined Cisco in 1996 and you were a founding member of Cisco's internal security team. What was the focus of security back then when you first joined Cisco? Very primitive. 
<laughs> so, I mean, they just at that time, they were actually still using, as many organizations, just clear text passwords for remote access. My focus in those early years was establishing initial policies, for example, the firewall policy, the network access policy. I mean, they didn't have any formalized policies managing the token access system, looking uh, procedures for onboarding new uh, acquisitions and approving changes to the uh, firewalls at that time. It was very early. There wasn't a lot of different ACLs or access control lists on the firewalls. But in those early days, it was pretty primitive because security was still pretty much a toddler at that time. Mm -hmm. In what ways did you see a change once the internet took off? I would say just complexity. I mean, that's a very broad uh, question. In those days, actually, I started in cybersecurity in 1988 when there was no technology. It was just as technology expanded and increased, we went from basic ACLs to extended ACLs. In those early days, there was no way to monitor or look at the network traffic as the types of attacks and challenges on the network and, and people experiencing the first malware attacks and DDoS or distributed denial of service attacks. Then technologists began to think about technology solutions to help defend against those attacks. And so it was uh, Cisco security matured with the whole internet maturity. I mean, and today Cisco is positioned as one of the top security companies in the industry. We make a lot of technology to help secure enterprises and we have a lot of good policies and procedures that place was just to grow that. I mean, we, we, the security industry grew up I, really in the last 20 years and still, still growing. And in the late 80s and early 90s, what were some of the main threats that you were seeing? Were these related to those clear text passwords? I think that, well, obviously the first attack that put security on the map was the Morse worm experiment, which I'll call an experiment, was malware. Actually, it wasn't written as malware. He was trying to count the number of computers on the internet and had a bug in his code, which ended up taking down a lot of computers. In those early years, there were no firewalls or ways for organizations to put a virtual perimeter around their networks. And so everything was open to threat actors who wanted to try to probe different ways to gain access. I mean, there was just, there was a lot of issues. That's really hard to pinpoint because we didn't even have secure coding. We didn't think about, you know, the early days of web application security. And, you know, it's just like being in a neighborhood with all the doors unlocked, right? A, a robber would just have to walk down the street and try, oh, look, this door's open. What can I go in and look? Until they begin to invent, you know, innovate on technologies to secure the perimeter and understand what attacks were happening and how you might resolve those. And Mandy, you've been a cybersecurity educator at Red Bank Regional High School since 2002. And a lot has changed since then. To give a bit of context to the listeners, the iPhone hadn't come out until 2007, and the internet bubble had just burst the prior year. What was cybersecurity like when you just started teaching? What sort of things were you teaching back then? Well, I came into it from as a network administrator for a little while and then uh, was hired to teach actually Cisco networking at my high school. So the cybersecurity course grew out of students who were becoming aware. It was actually curiosity created. So we were, and that was hardwiring networks, right? There wasn't a lot of Wi-Fi. And so it was fairly simple to transition from 
teaching them how to network computers to teaching them how to secure computers. You know, going back to what Michelle was just listing, we're looking at access control, which is fairly simple if your entry points are, are, are simple. So again, you know, that was fairly clear cut. I could explain to my students, well, if you have doors that are open or if you haven't put locks on or if you're not using complicated passwords, you know, these are some simple concepts for protecting data. And I would break it down into, you know, the triad confidentiality, integrity and, you know, availability. And and we would look at it in very simple terms. But now that we have no perimeters, now that we are constantly on wireless or cellular data, and, and that's where my students live, it has really changed the view of how to teach this and even to how to keep them interested in that cybersecurity. And you said you came from a network administration background. Can you explain what this consisted of? So I had been doing some IT work, tech support, and went ahead back in the old days. Um, you got your Microsoft Certified Systems Engineer certification, and you, uh, I worked for uh, actually for a school system, and I would do things like um, setting up servers, uh, switches. You know, it was very small network that uh, probably about a thousand users, and I did. It was a you know two person shop, and we do everything from wiring to I think it was. NT or server 2003 back then. So that was really good because I had an idea of what a small neighborhood looked like from a networking perspective. And I could bring that into my education as a hands-on experience. And as an educator, I really truly believe that you can't tell somebody about how something works. They have to experience it. So in my classroom, we create five cable from scratch. We set up wireless networks, and then we actually do the attacking on those structures in a virtual sense, but they do it for real. Yes. And in around 2005, you started training students to compete in the national cyber competitions. And like you said just now, a lot of this learning comes from experiencing it and getting hands-on experience. What did these competitions consist of back then? So the first competition we joined was a capture the flag type of competition that was run by NYU in their seesaw environment. And it was more forensics, to tell you the truth. They gave you virtual machines and you had to find metadata and you were looking for stuff in, in Wireshark captures, data you know that you could, maybe somebody had exfiltrated and you would find that or hidden data and then th that sort of thing. The exciting stuff started happening when we got involved with Cyber Patriot. Cisco's a big participant in that. So my students got to look at how to secure desktops, how to secure servers, and how to configure networks properly. So Cisco has a great program called Packet Tracer that virtualizes networks. And my students started becoming more excited about the larger scope of cybersecurity. Actually, they got more excited about securing. I'm constantly trying to get them to focus more on how do we secure rather than how does the hack work. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're interested in that. And we do a large part of my curriculum is about ethics. So that they're not interested in the hack in order to try it. That's just kind of the shiny thing that they find interesting. Competitions give them a shiny thing on the security side, the excitement of, of achieving something. And that's where the competitions helped us to direct the student attention to best practices. That's what a competition is about. It's looking to see whether or not you have a really good handle on best practices and can implement them. Mm -hmm. And 
Michelle, you work at Cisco, and Mandy, you were just talking about this tool packet tracer from Cisco. I used it in school, actually, and I think it's a great tool. It's a great way to simulate different types of network topologies and get this broader vision and hands-on experience. So I think it's really valuable, big companies doing these kind of things to train students and even other people in the industry that just want to switch to network administration and security. Agreed, yeah. Okay, yeah. Michelle, your recent work focuses on operational security, particularly in connected environments like the Internet of Things. For those people that are not familiar with IoT, can you explain at a high level what this consists of? Yeah, at a very high level, the Internet of Things is just connected devices. Something that most people can relate to would be maybe their mobile phones. But really, it's about attaching any kind of sensor or actuator on a device, right? Our standard iPhones may have four, five, six different sensors, like a microphone, a camera, a gyrometer, and a geolocator. You may have other devices, like a medical device that's going to have an actuator to make the insulin pump go or something in the contact lens to measure glucose, right? There's going to be motion sensors. You're going to have lights in a room that have sensors that measure temperature change or how many people are in the room or microphones. So it's these connecting devices that weren't connected before and even some older devices that had the capability that already had certain types of sensors and actuators connecting them now in uh, the networks of today. And the connection's not about just connecting it. The connection's about being able to get data, right? So for example, in a smart building, you'd want to have a connected lighting use case because you could have the lights only on when people are in the room and that would save money. Or you could have the air conditioning or heating unit only be working when someone was in the room and they wanted a certain temperature. And so it's a way for to gather the data to be able to use resources more efficiently and to be able to bring intelligence to things that we do today using the data from these connected devices. And like you said, we see this a lot in in manufacturing where you're trying to understand what's happening and saving costs, predict failures. And we also see it in the healthcare industry, right? Yeah, I actually see there's use cases in all verticals. Yeah, connected manufacturing is big, right? With the use of robots that are building car, robots like in Amazon that are pulling product, robots doing all types of things, doing welds, sorting, you know, types of product. And you would want to have that connected. You would want to know if the product line was going faster or slower, or if the robot was going to break down in a connected transportation. You would have, you know, you could have like shipping trucks that would have sensors. And then you want to know if the truck refrigeration was consistent for the product. You're going to find it in all verticals. You're going to have smart parking. You're going to have connected medical, uh, a lot of use cases there. Uh, in almost any vertical, there's a connected solution. And what are some of the security threats that you have seen in the Internet of Things or some of the risks? Yeah, I think the first one that was the wake-up call for all of us was the Mirai botnet. Uh, I think that was in 2016, and that really had to do with um, cameras. The primary challenge is that many of the connected devices are consumerized products that weren't meant to be hardened and secured. So they have easy default passwords. They're based on micro Linuxes that are perhaps a few 
versions out of date. And so there might be vulnerabilities that's common and known. They don't provide most of the connected devices, especially the consumerized ones, don't provide any kind of encryption or protection of the data. And even though the Internet of Things has been around for four or five, six years and connected things have been out there, it's still early in the infancy stage and being able to secure that whole infrastructure. And some of the security is going to have to come from the network. It's not going to make sense to take a 25 cent module and add security features. And now it's a $2.50 piece and you need to build 100 million of these. That's not a good model from a business perspective. So some of the security is going to have to come from the network level. But at this point, and they've demonstrated at Black Hat for multiple years and other forums, many of the common connected devices, including smart vehicles, have been hacked out there by threat actors, right? They've had cars drive off the road. They've had, you know, they've hacked the heart implant monitor, the glucose pump, the connected beds, the traffic lights, uh, you name it. There's been a lot of connected devices that have been hacked in one way or other. Most often a simple password that was default or the fact that it's running an older micro Linux that hasn't been patched. Things that we saw in the networking standard world, internet world, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Yes, that's exactly what I was thinking of because we started this conversation talking about what the panorama was like 20 years ago. And one of the first things you said was storing clear text passwords. I've seen this at least once a year. There's a news article where, I don't know, I think there one of them was a children's toy, I think a teddy bear or something that said they got hacked and the passwords were stored in clear text. And we really haven't learned as much or this knowledge hasn't transmitted. Do you think this is a lack of a standard or what would be one way that people are trying to solve this? Uh, well, there are multiple things happening. I mean, the, the, some of the standard, some of the known standards forms, such as NIST is one, IEEE, are working on various standards that apply to the Internet of Things. I mean, NIST is even having a workshop this coming up in July. There's a number of organizations. Cisco itself has had an invested effort, and there are there's no lack of standards in the space on how to secure IoT devices. And that may be part of the challenge is there's just so many of them. It's people, there's lots of good advice out there. It's just being able to apply it consistently and also ensuring that the level of security that, that's being required of the vendors or the device matches the intended use of the device. Like I said, if you're if you have a sensor on a garbage can because you're trying to determine when the trash cans in a building need to be emptied, you don't need a trusted hardware anchor that's going to do secure boot on that trash can sensor. But if you have a heart implant, a heart monitor or defibrillator, you probably would like to have a trusted hardened device boot ROM in that chip so it couldn't be hacked. So it needs to match for the intended use of the device. Mandy, did you want to say something? Yeah. The thing that comes to mind in my classroom concerning this is almost teaching the students hygiene. As Michelle pointed out, if you have a device that costs a certain amount of money, you can't make it more expensive um, just to you know, impose a security. It may not even be worth it. But if your users have good security hygiene, and for instance, one of those hygiene pieces would be installing updates. So, or even restarting their devices so that changes can be made. So an example right now would be there's a VPN uh, botnet that's hitting routers. And we've, you know, we've seen it in the news that the FBI is kind of desperately putting the word out 
to ask people to restart their routers because if they restart their routers, the update will load and the botnet will be cut off. So it can be so simple, replacing default passwords when you have a device, uh, restarting so that you know you can cut short some sort of activity. And my students are so sick and tired of me saying the word update. I mean, they're going to be the users out there in the world who are going to have their updates installed, let me tell you. That can make a huge difference. If we can, yes, it would be nice if the network was more secure through through things that are imposed by our network administrators, but I really do think that this is all going to come down to users. Just like stopping bacteria has been reduced by washing hands, we're going to make a difference in technology with educated users who understand just the impact of small, small actions. And the way that I've experienced this as a user of different tools is I get a message saying, you haven't changed your password in, let's say, 70 days. You might want to change it or make sure you're not using the password from another portal. That kind of thing. I think it's very important to embed in the UI and the user experience of these tools because it's a way to educate people. Other than that is, I don't know how else you could try to do this other than the classroom or getting people to read online. But I think putting that information in the tools themselves is a really good first step. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If a reminder, you know, making people aware of why though, they almost have to be shocked about the risk in order to buy into it. And they love the convenience. They love the convenience of their trash sensor and their, you know, I can check my you know, whether anybody's in my backyard with the video. And we go online. So if you go on to Shodan, which is a great website that shows you all of a lot of stuff that's IoT, and it'll show you some of the vulnerable items. And my students can easily find somebody's webcam in their backyard or their restaurant that is live with a default password that anybody can see. That's pretty eye-opening to them. Do you tell your students to do something about it in the sense like go to your neighbor and maybe tell them, hey, you, you, sh- you might probably want to do this? Well, it's a really interesting line in education. So for instance, we do that. We go on Shodan and we look around under controlled circumstances. While my students are in my classroom or working with me, they're bound by an ethics agreement that extends beyond the classroom. I see. So for instance, I would. it's against my ethics agreement for them to scan any of their neighbors or, or anybody without telling them they're going to scan them. So they almost run by pen testing rules, if you will, so that I don't want a 16 or a 17-year-old to accidentally go over the line in experimentation. We have to keep our experimenting in controlled environment while they're learning. On the other hand, yes, you should tell everybody around you what you've learned in the classroom. I don't think you should be demonstrating it to them when you're you know, a high school student. That's really important, this notion of embedding ethics in the curriculum, which not a lot of teachers are doing. They just give the kids the tools and they can do whatever they want. But at least if the teacher is mentioning to them, don't do this or keep this in mind or do it under these rules, I think that's great. It lets me sleep at night. I'll tell you that much. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I want to talk a little bit more about teaching and education, particularly now after almost 20 years that you've been teaching cybersecurity. How have the teaching methods changed? So when I first started, I had to build desktops with the right operating system so that the student could try it out. So I would have, you know, a ton of, sometimes I had to take donated equipment. And um, so 
now of obviously I can, I've got virtual machines all over the place. You know, I've got hard drives that the students walk around with that might have 10 different operating systems on them. And I have enough memory on my computer. The students can do everything. You know, they can take a Kali machine, a Linux machine and a Windows machine and, and have a complete environment interactive there. And now with Dockers, we're seeing even more portability and more possibilities. So for instance, the game that we just ran, Cyberstart, uh, which got so much participation, especially from girls, was able to use a Docker environment to make it possible for them to do very small experiences still online without having to have any of the technology in place on their computers. So the changes in technology mean there's more for me to be teaching and I have to learn more as I go, but it also makes it so much more accessible to more people to even teach it. You don't need to have been a network administrator in your previous life to do this anymore. You, the tools are available for you to be a really good cybersecurity teacher without ever having been in the field professionally. Yeah, I was going to add to that, not only just in terms of the education, but one characteristic that sets, well, I'm a little bit biased, but I think that sets cybersecurity professionals aside is their insatiable desire to learn, and they must be a lifelong learner. So the newer technologies such as dark, uh, Docker, and virtual image, VMware, and, and the Kali Linux provide opportunities for anyone who wants to learn more about cybersecurity and the tools or any of the newer technologies, whether it's blockchain or, or the, the different types of IoT or network scanning, you name it. They provide a platform for people to learn about the technology in on their own time, on their own machine, and it makes it great, more accessible to everyone. Exactly. And unfortunately, not all the schools have a dedicated cybersecurity program. And you mentioned new tools have enabled this to be easier. Michelle, you were just talking about with Docker and things like that. For people that don't know how to get started and exposed to this area, what kind of activities do you recommend to get children interested in the field? What resources are out there? Well, the primary introduction, if you don't have it in your school, is going to be some sort of competition. So throughout the year, there are probably three to four competitions Typically, they're, they, you know, they're captured a flag. So the larger competitions like Cyber Patriot are year long and you join a team and you train. And that's step two, I would say. Step one is to do the competitions that are capture the flags or even are ongoing online. And when we say capture the flag, for those who haven't played them, they're really puzzles. You, you sometimes can choose from an array of puzzles. Sometimes it's a storyline and you might come up across a crypto a problem and you solve that and that opens up another box. And then you're learning as you go. That's the nice thing about some of these competitions is they start with a fairly nice ramp. And what Michelle said about cybersecurity professionals being lifelong learners, they love learning. It, it tends to be something that excites a cybersecurity person. So puzzles are just you know part of what we do when we code and when we try to solve networking problems. And so I think that that's where the starting point has been most successful uh, for our students, is for them to get excited by uh, a gaming environment 
It's not gamification in the sense that it's Mario Brothers and you have to go through hoops and reach levels. It's gaming in the sense that there is a sequence and there's a, a somewhat of a reward as you go. But it's very much still learning. It, related to this earlier, you mentioned CyberStart. Can you explain what this program is? It was developed as a cyber discovery program in the uh, United Kingdom. And The concept in the United Kingdom was that they wanted to do a game program that would then lead into a course called Essentials, and they would do it as an after-school club environment. And that's great, and it's been very, very successful there. In the United, so Sands Institute said, let's try this in the United States. But we have a, a different school system. We're very fractured by state, by town, et cetera. So... Sand said, well, we'll just try this out online, trying to attract students on their own. And that was fairly successful during the summer for some high school and college students. And what we noticed, I got the opportunity to help participate in that, was that we weren't seeing a lot of girls at the top of the charts. They were participating, but they weren't necessarily in the top 100. So You know, I'm always looking for ways to get underrepresented groups more involved. So Sands was willing to run a girls-only version of CyberStart. And this is where we really started to see the power of this program because it not only attracts boys who are interested in the way the game works, but the storyline, and it has a field manual, which people find very helpful for getting started. And just a couple of other ways that we adapted to making the game accessible to girls. We let them play in groups if they wanted to, instead of one-on-one. -on -one. So CyberStart itself has been the next step in using games and competitions because it really broke through that gender barrier for the first time. In one week, over 6,000 girls participated, which is really cool. But what's really cool is that there's something like 13 levels and some of these girls blew through to some really sophisticated levels from almost no background. And we were just amazed that if we can help kids get excited and convince them they want to try it, putting the right tool in front of them will really fast track. It. And this was one of the proofs. That's awesome. And the name of this program is Girls Go CyberStart, right? That was the girls-only version of our CyberStart competition. But CyberStart itself is, is really a CyberStart game. And then we are looking to get college students into the next level, which is CyberStart Essentials, which is a really deep, challenging, really coursework online, which again is interactive. If you're learning in coding, if you're learning in technology, if you're learning in cybersecurity, there should be an application component to that learning so you can really feel like you know what you're doing. And that's what Essentials is trying to add to the classroom experience. College teachers, high school teachers, if they're doing it, we're really good at explaining concepts. But how do you create an entire website that's got a web vulnerability like a SQL injection or cross-site scripting? I can't do that. So CyberStart Essentials and gaming have those really deep experiences that you can really apply skills. I think we can all agree that when it comes to cybersecurity, theory is great, but you know how to apply it. Yes. And we've been talking about how to get underrepresented groups like girls and college students exposed to the area of cybersecurity through a curriculum at a school, but also through competitions for the case where their school doesn't offer it. Michelle, in 2014, you founded the Cisco Women in Cybersecurity which has a focus on 
expanding awareness about some of the most exciting opportunities in the field of cybersecurity. Can you talk a bit about the motivation for this and what those opportunities are? Yeah, so the Security and Trust Organization at Cisco has close to 700 people overall. Back then in 2014, there was probably a good 500 plus. And we've known for several years through industry studies that the number of women in the cybersecurity profession is about 10% overall, the number of professionals. There's also almost, depending on what research read almost epidemic proportions of lack of skilled cyber talent, which is one of the reasons behind the original program in UK and the Cyber Start program, which Sands is trying to write, is we need skilled professionals. So we started the Inclusion and Collaboration Networking Community, which is a formal branding name within Cisco. And the idea was we wanted to do multiple things. One, we wanted to bring more awareness inside to Cisco for women that, hey, this is a great field to be in and provide them training, provide them a platform where they could learn and meet and network with other women in cybersecurity. We also wanted to build the pipeline, right? So we do some activities outside and Girls Go Cyber Start is one of them. We also do, like this week, we did an activity with the Girl Scouts, helping them get their badge, their cybersecurity badge. Uh, We've done activities. Cisco has a Girls Power Tech they do annually around the International Women's Day, and we did some cybersecurity programs there. So it's getting the knowledge out to middle school, high school, and college girls that, hey, this is a great career. These are the opportunities you have. And here's a little bit about it. And then it's also our community is about, you know, obviously we're looking for good talent to bring into Cisco. So we have the, we kind of go with the four pillars of build the pipeline, attract talent to Cisco, retain the current talent we have, and then connect the communities both internally and externally. And today we have over 400 people in the community. In part, one of our strategic goals is actually to reach out to other organizations and see if they have a women in cyber focus or help them build their own communities and then be able to connect the communities across the, you know, the internet. Mm -hmm. And like you said, this pipeline is the students, children, getting them interested in this field and women that are already in cybersecurity, retain them in cybersecurity, make sure, you know, they're happy. And there's also this retraining component, right? Getting people to transition to a role in cybersecurity. Yeah. So if we have people that are, you know, for example, uh, one of the ways was about four years ago, three years ago, actually almost four years ago, uh, Cisco did a partnership with San Jose State and founded a master's degree. It was software engineering with a concentration in cybersecurity. And there was, uh, you know, originally I was in the first cohort and there was only like two or three girls or women, actually, you know, we're already working in the professional field, right? And so that was for internally at Cisco, through our community, providing awareness to others about this master degree. Today is probably almost equal men and women in the program, which is a Cisco-sponsored master's, and that's a way. Internally, we also have training uh, with curriculum that we have at Cisco and and by going to conferences and actually Cisco has uses, they use a lot of the SANS training as well, right? They buy training vouchers. 
and uh, we provide avenues and opportunities for women to have training if they want to enter the, the cybersecurity field or have a job that has a more tighter focus on cybersecurity. That's great. And I'll make sure I include some of that information in the blog post when that, this episode goes live. Well, Michelle and Mandy, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a real treat talking to you about cybersecurity before and after and what it's currently looking like right now. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I enjoyed it. And uh, always happy to, to help get the word out and encourage other women, especially young women still in school, middle school, high school and college, that this is a great career to go into. And there are many, many opportunities. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. Thanks to Blind for being a new sponsor of the show. Go to teamblind.com. That's teamblind.com to download the app and connect with other employees from your company. Check it out. <laughs>